Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. The easiest answer to that is our sex hormones. Let's just start there. And we have the impact of estrogen and progesterone. And the way I look at them is they're like sisters that come from the same family, but their personalities are vastly different. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Betty's so happy you are here. Happy December and welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And we are kicking off our annual tradition of taking a look back over the course of the year and finding the best of. So over the next few weeks, you will be seeing the best of 2022 with Better. And we are going to be amalgamating conversations from thought leaders around hormones, around menstruation, and menopause, around fitness and building an hourglass figure and building your physique and metabolism. This week is the best of 2022 all about hormones. So in these clips that we have pulled for you, you are going to hear from Cynthia Thurlow, Mindy Pels, my unofficial BFF, where we talk all about fasting and sex hormones, Dr. Molly Malouf, again, another unofficial BFF. I don't know if she knows this, but she's totally my BFF. Uh, Kashif Khan, where we're talking about the genetics of uh, androgen and estrogen metabolism. Brian Saunders, Rick Johnson on fructose and fructose metabolism. Dr. David Perlmutter, Dr. Brett Scher, and Sal Stefano. These are all conversations, clips around specific hormones. So we talk about sex hormones in this clip. We talk about thyroid hormones. We talk about um, testosterone, progesterone, estrogen, oxytocin, insulin. All of the hormones uh, are in this clip. I hope that uh, in these clips, I hope that you really enjoy this. It's actually a really fun process to go back to see some of the conversations that we've had over the course of the year and some of the content that we've produced for you. So without further delay, please enjoy the best of 2022 hormone edition. I am a 
huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health. The list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Let's talk about oxytocin. This is the one I'm really excited about. I was saying to the pre-chat, like no one talks about oxytocin. Let's talk about its relationship with insulin and then how uh, maybe it fluctuates in our menstrual cycle and how we can optimize uh, our oxytocin, our oxytocin uh, cadence and secretion. Yeah. I mean, oxytocin in many ways is thought of as this kind of mother hormone, you know, the hormone that kind of governs all these other hormones in our bodies. And I think it's important for people to understand that when it comes to oxytocin, it's this like nurturing hormone. It's the hormone that I think for many people, they think of as, you know, when a woman is breastfeeding her child and just how bonded you feel. I mean, it's really this bonding hormone and it's complex in a relationship with insulin. You know, it's not the, you know, this, this complex in a relationship and the understanding that when oxytocin is optimized, your insulin levels are going to be lower. Your cortisol levels are going to be a lower. And so, you know, finding strategies in our day-to-day life, like 
insulin is fleeting. So when it's secreted, it doesn't hang around for a long period of time. So I think the joke is that you want to, not the joke, the fact is that you want to evoke um, stimulating insulin throughout the day because it's not like it hangs around for hours. It hangs around for minutes. And so the best example I can give you is I have two dogs who love lots of affection. And throughout the day, I give them hugs. I rub their ears. I rub their back. And that's good for both of us. It's good for them. It's good for me. Um, of course, my husband just left for a business trip, but, you know, hugging your spouse, connecting with people that you love, um, you know, just thinking about something joyful, connecting with your infant, like when women breastfeed, that's part of that bonding hormone. And so just the acknowledgement that by secreting insulin, by secreting oxytocin in the body, we are doing a beautiful job of naturally lowering cortisol response. We're lowering insulin as well. And how this can be hugely instrumental. If someone's saying they're stuck, they plateaued, they can't lose weight. I'm always saying like doing something joyful, something that brings you joy is as important as the exercise, the food choices we make, the sleep quality that we make. And I think, unfortunately, because this is less tangible, people choose not to focus on it, but it's actually the hormone. Like when I'm talking to a group of women, it's oftentimes what I start with, because if they understand that, then it opens up a whole new level of possibility for them. Um, in terms of finding hormonal balance. I mean, balance is elusive, but finding better balance for them in their current circumstances. And I think that's so important for women to be chasing or finding joy, Mm -hmm. you know, like to find what makes you happy. So maybe that is buying yourself some flowers or maybe it's, you know, buying yourself, uh, I don't know, some new trainers for your workout or going for a walk, spending time in nature, you know, getting together, you know, with your friends or whatever it is. I, I think that that's so important because we are naturally, uh, as women just in society, we're natural, I mean, nurturing and natural caregivers, very much uh, always thinking about, at least, uh, you know, I'm thinking about my role as a mom. Like I'm always thinking about my boys, like what do, you know, what do mm-hmm. they need next? Trying to anticipate like when food needs to be be ready. You know, the laundry needs to be done. I need to take them to soccer practice, blah, 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 blah. They need to, you know, debrief and tell me about their day and there's playtime and all that. So I'm always thinking about how I can make their lives better. But sometimes, and I do this all the time, I forget about what makes me happy. I forget mm-hmm. about doing the things that make me happy. So, um, you know, one of the practices that has been really helpful for me, particularly in the pandemic, is I've invested in weights and like more of a home gym so that, you know, the gyms have been closed and stuff. So um, to kind of circumvent that that challenge. But in the morning, that's my time. Like I wake up before the kids, I go downstairs, I do my hour and then they're kind of waking up by the time I'm done. And then we have our little morning together. And I think in a really busy woman's uh, schedule, maybe looking at a calendar and saying like, where can I, where can I do some joy time? Like, where's my joy? You know, maybe workout, maybe the exercise doesn't bring you joy. It makes me, it makes me feel like a beast. So I feel happy. (laughs) That's my, (laughs) that's my joy. But maybe someone else, it might be going for a walk. You know, it might be journaling. It might be doing like taking a bath or, you know, whatever it is, giving yourself a mani-pedi, which I did last night. That made me like, I don't know what it is about mani-pedi, Cynthia. They make me feel like I'm winning in life. Like if I can figure out... So that's my, that's my little, my little spiel there on, on oxytocin and finding some love for you. And I think it's, it's important. It might be very different for all of us. Like I'm at a stage with teenagers that they need me in different ways. Um, I kind of feel like I'm like the backup quarterback. I was telling my husband that the other night, I was like, it's kind of a weird place to be after being in this yummy years and years and years with boys and, and having different relationships now as they're teenage young men. 
Um, one of the things I've been able to do is be able to like spend more time reading and I'm a gigantic nerd. I love to learn. And so my husband laughs, like some days I'm like, I just want two hours to listen to Peter Atia's podcast as an example, so that I can learn about something that maybe will bring greater value to my clients, or maybe it's a book I need to read. And so really finding like, it can be as simple as sitting outside and getting sunshine or giving, you know, honoring your, your body by being able to find the time to do a manicure and pedicure. I think that's awesome. I just mm-hmm. think it's all different for all of us, but I've just come to find out like, as my kids get older, it definitely starts to shift a little bit. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. I think that's a great thing. Cause you have more time to focus on you. That's one it's of the a beautiful strange things. Place today. Strange yeah. place. Why do we need to fast like women? Why do you have to fast like a girl and not like a guy? What is the what is the difference? Can you explain to us um, where uh, where? Well, I mean, the inspiration for the book, but why can't why can't we fast like everybody else? Yeah, and so the the easiest answer to that is our sex hormones. Let's just start there. You know, we've got estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. Yes, men have some of the. They have a lot of testosterone. They have, uh, you know, a lot of or some estrogen, a little bit, a little tiny bit of progesterone, but they. Um, they're, they're, it doesn't drive them. Testosterone really drives men. And we have the impact of estrogen and progesterone. And the way I look at them is they're like sisters that come from the same family, but their personalities are vastly different. And so when it comes to fa- to fasting, we need to treat them very differently. And as you and I have talked about, we need to treat the way we eat differently when these two hormones come in. We need to treat the way we work out, the way we, our social calendar. There's so many reasons why these two hormones almost need exact opposite lifestyles. Um, and so when it comes to fasting, that was the whole premise of the book is let's talk about how those two hormones need to be treated differently. Even though they're both sex hormones, they have major differences in how they like to be treated. Yeah, I, I agree with this wholeheartedly. And I love that you've written a book on this um, as well, because I think one of the one of the things that I've, I've talked about in the past is like men really are like the sun and women are like the moon, right? So men kind of cycle through all of their hormones about every 24 hours or so, whereas yeah. we take a full, well, you know, give or take a couple of days. We, we go through a lunar phase almost. So it's like 29, you know, the lunar phase is 29 and a half days. That, you know, of course is the average menstrual cycle for most women as well. So we kind of go through all of the different permutations, highs and lows of our estrogen, as you're saying, the progesterone, the testosterone through this 29 or so day cycle. One thing I've thought about with ovulation is this is really the time that we're going to get a massive surge of testosterone. Like this is our, our our testosterone's like glory moment is in that ovulation window. So do you feel like when testosterone's on the scene, our ability to build muscle is going to be enhanced or is it going to be more that our craving to build muscle is going to be more enhanced? That's a really good question. I think with the testosterone and estrogen peaking, what we know is that those are very stimulatory to the motor cortex in the brain. So in some ways, we're like firing on all cylinders, right? So the mm-hmm. motor cortex is more activated. So of course, we, the motor cortex in the brain, uh, for those of you that are maybe unaware, this is the... Um, 
This is the area in the brain that controls movement. So you are going to be very well primed to be lifting heavy in this week because of the brain activation, let's say under the influence of testosterone and estrogen. And to your question around, can you build more muscle because testosterone is surging? I think that there is some truth to that. So, at, you know, one of the things that we want to do is we want to, in, in you know, many other areas in, in our lives, we want to get out of vicious circles. But this is a yes. this is a circle that we kind of want to get into, where it's like the well heavier said. you, yeah, the heavier that you lift, the more testosterone is going to be produced as an indirect consequence of be, having to maintain that muscle. Yep. So, I think that the mechanical stimulus of lifting heavy all through the cycle is justified. But in particular this week, because you have that spike in testosterone, your may potentially your capacity under the influence of having that motor cortex activation for new mo- muscle patterns or heavier or, or a heavier load is going to be augmented. And uh, you have the energy, right? You're going to have right. sort of the energy to put towards yeah. doing a, a much more vigorous or rigorous uh, a workout. So I think that there is some truth to what you're saying in terms because we see testosterone spiking, we can actually go harder at the gym because of the influence that it has in maintaining muscle mass. Yeah. And one thought I've had, and I've talked to several trainers about this, is that when we look at exercise, we typically look at it in a weekly way, like yeah. you do three, three days a week of this, one day a week of that. And when you start to look at our hormones, I think women should be looking at this in a monthly basis. And when I look at that five-day period, there's a part of my hormonal brain that says, well, what if one day you go in and you do uh, biceps and then the next, and you go hard, like heavy weights, low reps to your point, the next day you do a bunch of squats. So you're going to really work on glutes and, 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 and your, um, your quads. Next day, you're going to go in on pecs. So you could take that five days and really chunk it down into specific body groups and really target them with heavy weights. What is health optimization for females? I mean, so first we have to ask ourselves, what is health, right? And what is cellulogenesis? So like, let's just define those really quickly. Health is the ability to adapt and self-manage in the face of adversity. And cellulogenesis is literally the process of becoming healthier. And so as a person becomes healthier and more resilient, it has more bioenergetic capacity, more energy to do work. Their body can actually be, bounce back when they get hit with a major stressor. Women and men are just made differently. And we need to accept the differences are real. And one of the biggest differences between men and women is women are largely oxytocin dominant and men are largely vasopressin dominant. So men's biological imperative is to protect the clan and to actually go out and find resources and to actually take care of the group. Women's jobs are actually largely to produce life and to basically be the, be the flirt, like we create flourishing, right? Like we create literally when, when oxytocin is released during, um, during pregnancy, it enables the birth process. When oxytocin is released during breastfeeding, it enables the bonding process. So like we are literally designed to like create life, to create connection and to facilitate the nurturing of the species, because literally oxytocin actually helps build brain functions. Actually, it nourishes the prefrontal cortex. It facilitates social connection, social learning skills. It's super important for pair bonding. It's like 
we have this, the Taoism the is really a fascinating perspective because it actually explains a lot of existence. And there's, there's a lot of polarities in existence and women's, our polarity is the yin, men's polarity is yang. I do believe we have essentially yin and yang within us. And I think I am more yang dominant female than most women are because I am, I do have a lot of positive masculine characteristics, but fundamentally I'm a woman. And I'm here to help basically promote human flourishing. And that's really my perspective on health. But um, women are now in a world where we work and we raise children and we work. And so we have really extensive stressors on our, on our, on our shoulders. And men are in a world where they also work, but men, um, men need connection and love and they need it deeply to flourish as well. And I think what's really a problem in the world right now is there's like this massive sort of patriarchal masculine dominance to culture and society that really emerged around agricultural era. And that has really caused a huge amount of problems, but also a lot of, honestly, a lot of evolution in the positive direction, but also a lot of problems. Let's start with some of the sex hormones, because I know that uh, I was saying to you in the pre-chat, lots of, so lots of clinicians who listen to the show, also lots of women kind of in their perimenopausal, menopausal years that are just trying to figure out what's going on and how to optimize for either the eventual transition to menopause, or if you're already in menopause, like how to optimize where you are. So let's, let's maybe start with androgens, um, and start maybe with, um, the conversion to androgens. So we have uh, CYP17A1, uh, which is kind of the main, uh, we'll bring that, you know, that's sort of where we bring progesterone conversion into T or testosterone. Um, what are, so when we, when we create testosterone, uh, what are the different fates, let's say that testosterone has, like, what are the different, um, potential complications with less than optimal gene expression and where does like, first, where does testosterone go? And then where can we run awry? So in that, that's step one, even understanding that it's not a linear, you know, one size fits all model. We're very unique in the way we metabolize hormones when we first start, by the way, I should say one thing. The thing that sucks the most in healthcare is female hormone health. You know, we, we in our research phase, we studied 7,000 people, about half men, half women. And the thing that kept screaming, well, you're supposed to have this problem. It's a gray area. Nobody knows, you know, it, it's female hormones. Right. And we take for granted that infertility, bad menopause, PMS, all these problems are just part of being a woman. Not at all true. What's, what's true is that our metabolic pathways for hormones are a little different. And so the one size fits all certainly does not work. And the endocrine disruptors of food, the chemicals, the et cetera, the birth control pills, everything that's adding a load to us, or I shouldn't include myself that and to women, you know, it's just, it, it, the impact is amazing. And I can't believe that every woman doesn't have a Nobel peace prize right now for trying to survive <laughs> the North American healthcare system. Cause it sucks so bad, but yeah. anyways, we're trying to fix it together. So let's work on it. Uh, so testosterone, yes, CYP17A1 determines how quickly you convert progesterone into testosterone. So the first step is how many hormones do I make? What's that bucket look like? You know, it, because now you've, just, you've decided how much you've loaded the gun and what you're going to do with it. So some women have a lot more hormones. Someone just, they just start off with less. So they're starting off with a problem to begin with. Once you fill that testosterone bucket, you may convert it into with the CYP19A1 gene estrogen, right? That's the end of the pathway. You then convert it to estrogen. But before doing that, your body has a few more options, depending on what version of these genes you have. CYP3A4 eliminates the clean androgen. So that, that initial bucket that you filled, before you have the ability to convert it into estrogen, you may get rid of it. 
as a, as a testosterone. And very few women do this, but, but some do. I would say it's like a five to 7% problem. A lot more women, however, convert the testosterone into DHT, SRD5A2. That's the gene that converts your testosterone, converts it into DHT, which is the manly man, superman version of testosterone, where you can see every ripped muscle and there's no fat. And it also causes other problems like hair, skin, cystic acne, right? Where you can get very specific about why these things are happening. But like another nuance, once you convert into DHT, there's a gene that uh, in your multiple detox pathways instructs what's called glucuronidation. It's another form of clearance. Uh, the UGT genes, there's two of them. And that's where you can have a copy number variation. You might not even have the gene. And so you're making this DHT and you also don't get rid of it. There's a young lady in our research phase that came to us who uh, was 22, had her first menstrual cycle at 16, and by the age of 22 had six total. Wow. One per year. Mm. Her concern was that her acne was so bad that she had to walk everywhere with a rubber donut. She couldn't sit on a chair. Her hair was falling out. She had acne head to toe. She had an amazing ripped six pack. Like you could see, uh, it was more like an eight pack actually, but everything else was falling apart for her. She didn't have the, the female physique she desired. You know, the breast development was slow. The hips were slow. She didn't have any of the stuff that she wanted. Um, and so all of a sudden, her father, who was an internist, uh, found out she had uh, non-fatty liver issues. And so they put her on some kind of pills. They blamed all this on the pills. They said this is a side effect of the medication you're taking. It's a load on your body. And so you're getting pimples because of toxicity. Your hair is falling out because of toxicity. Inflammation, that's what they blame it on. In reality, she fueled that testosterone bucket really heavy, so a lot of hormones. She zero eliminated the testosterone. She zero converted it into estrogen. She 100% converted it into DHT, and she had both copies of both, oh, sorry, she had zero copies of both glucuronidation genes, so she did not get rid of it. So she was just a hypercharged, androgenized DHT producer. So she was wonderful. a female with a body that was behaving more male. Yes. She, yeah. and, and even that, an alpha male. Yeah. Right. She was designed to be Wonder Woman or Superman. That's what mm -hmm. she was designed for. And, and she wasn't using it. She wasn't doing any of that. She just wanted to be what she believed a woman is. So literally it took, um, so again, 16 to 22, had that problem for six years. I told you six menstrual cycles. It took about three months of using food and supplements to up and down regulate certain gene pathways of the ones we already spoke of. And she literally walked into our office crying, saying it's the first time I feel like a girl. She walked in with her ponytail, you know, blue, beautiful glowing skin, all this stuff. And she felt amazing. And it wasn't a clinical, it wasn't a disease. She didn't have a, there was no what, there was a why. What's the root cause of all of this? And it was just, and it's a very exaggerated androgenized profile, which you very, very rarely see. So I spoke about an exaggerated profile because that's, you could be, you know, zero to 10 on that profile. And from what she's experienced down to something like PCOS or, you know, acne on your cheeks, so you just can't get rid of, or I want to be a little bit curvy, but I just can't, I want to look like, and it could be the opposite. I need to be a little less curvy. I, I, everybody has goals the trial and error, the one size fits all, I don't think is necessary anymore. 
you know, what we under now, we, what we now understand about genomics and how easy it is to do, you can just read your map and know on day one exactly what you need. It's, it's become that easy. Yeah. And I, and I think for, uh, I'm so glad that you brought up PCOS because it's the most common hormonal, uh, you know, issue that we will see with women. Uh, I think the latest numbers are like a hundred million women worldwide. And that is, that is a number, you know, like a hundred million women worldwide dealing with PCOS. And, you know, to your point around the Nobel Peace Prize, there's usually an average when we see some kind of hormonal disruption, there's a huge delta between the time when a woman says, Hey, something's wrong. I have six menstrual cycles or my hair's falling out or I have hair on my chest. I don't think that that, or, you know, on my back or I'm an ovulatory or whatever. Um, to the point of diagnosis. Like I think, uh, I know endometriosis is like a, a mean of like seven to eight years before the diagnosis is given. PCOS right. is similar. It's like five to seven years, something like that. And like, think about five, what you were doing five years ago. That's a long time to be Sounds fighting cool. and continually saying something is wrong. It's not in my head. Something's wrong with me. Like that really does take a toll on the psyche of a woman as well, which is, you know, partially I'll say why we do see in these populations with hyperandrogenization with our women, where we see depression and anxiety and they don't want to, and we don't want to talk about depression. Like everyone will say, yeah, I have hair on my chin or I have like, we're very, we're much more likely in my experience as a clinician anyway, and I'm sure you can chime in on this with all the cases that you've seen, but people don't want to talk about mental illness. They don't want to mm -hmm. talk about depression. We've seen that with the pandemic, you know, we completely ignored it. It was like, let's save every single life. Anyone who gets this, you know, this disease, this COVID or whatever, we're going to sacrifice everyone's mental health to make sure that that happens. We're going to isolate people and we're not, and I don't mean to go down this tangent, but uh, I will, I will pull myself back in, but I'm just, what I'm trying to say is that your piece PCOS patient, if you're a clinician listening to this, is not going to tell you that she's suffering, that she's anxious and that she's depressed. She will tell you that she's anovulatory. Her cycles are, she can't get pregnant. She can't stay pregnant. She can't get or maintain a pregnancy. All of these different things that we've been talking about. But I also just want to highlight that some of these mental health issues are also happening in the background. But I think as a society, we're still so ashamed. There's still such a stigma um, yeah. around it as well. Big, big taboo. And that's where, when we when we meet with patients clinically, we have their genome in hand. So we already know what's going on in their head, whether right. they tell us or not. And and when I say that, I'm not saying that this person is an anxiety patient, this person is a depression patient. Why, did, why is there such a big mental health wave, like you said, after lockdown post-COVID? Those people were not, they didn't have a condition. The context drove that out of them. Correct. They were they were they were flourishing before that. There were no problem. Mm -hmm. They didn't have depression. They didn't have anxiety. They maybe had little, you know, little bits of it here and there. But the clinical, I think I need a pill. It's because whatever they're wired for, that optimal environment for their brain, they were no longer in, and all of a sudden they were suffocating their superpower. Once a woman, which most women do, you know, get deep into their estrogen pathway, they've now converted and they finish that step one. Uh, sex hormone pathway. What do I actually make? That's what we just kind of covered. The next phase of that is what metabolite do I convert it into? And there's, this is phase two of three. There's three things we got to talk about. So some women go down the two hydroxy pathway, which is great, clean, healthy stuff, which is what you want to make. SIP1A1 and SIP1A2. Those are the genes that 
convert the estrogen into this pathway. And when I say that, it means that before you have your monthly, monthly menstrual cycle, you're converting into this metabolite, and that's actually what you're getting rid of. There's also the 4 and 16 hydroxy pathway, which are toxic. Uh, 16 being super toxic. We see it in breast cancer patients. Uh, we see it in ovarian cancer. We see it in men that have testicular cancer, right? Super, super potent toxin. And I can't tell you how many women we see that are down the 4-hydroxy pathway. Now, given that we've, okay, we've established a woman may be estrogen dominant. She just makes a lot more estrogen. We can determine that from the first step. We may establish that she's also estrogen toxic. Well, then step three, how well does she clear? We have to look at the genes that get rid of this toxic metabolite. And if you're doing really well there, it may not be that big of a deal, right? That's where you can personalize and say, okay, I make this stuff, but the genes that get rid of it, I have the best versions. Not many of us do. Right? Not many of us came from an ancestry that required this. So some of the same genes that deal with brain chemicals like COMPT, uh, the same GST genes we talked about, the glutathione, the detox genes, plus antioxidant genes like SOD2. These are the multiple things we have to map, which we have mapped. It's very easy to understand in the algorithm. How well do you now clear that potential toxic metabolite that you make? And if you are that woman that is estrogen dominant, estrogen toxic, bad detox pathways. Well, there's a red flag. There's not a red flag for this equals 80% chance of something. We don't think that way. We now say, here's your avatar. Here's the bucket you fit in. You're in the estrogen toxic, no clearance bucket. Here's the risks. If you have the wrong environment, nutrition, lifestyle loads, are you one of those 85% of North American women that was on a birth control pill for five to 15 years? Are you one of those North American women that as she starts to age, immediately starts going on hormone replacement therapy without understanding which one? Not I'm saying not to do it or not, but did you do it right? Right, precise for how the way your body needs it. Are you that woman that doesn't understand hormone disruption and something as simple as a Teflon coated frying pan or the chemicals that make your lawn so beautiful or the cleaning spray on your desktop that you're now breathing in all day long? Are you that woman that's exposed to that stuff? So profile, here's my genes. Here's the load that if they were on the bad profile would push me over the edge, that threshold where my body can't cope. And that's when things like breast cancer, ovarian cancer, crazy menopause, crazy menstrual cycle, pain, you know, can't get out of bed for a week. Why is there so much variability in this thing that women go through? Some women don't even know that their cycle's coming. Some women can't go to work. Why is there a difference? Because the way you make hormones, their toxicity level, and the way you clear them is different. Plus, your environment, nutrition, lifestyle choices are different. The combination of these three things is your net result. Right now, you can be very, very predictive and precise about how you're going to feel. And if you fear breast cancer, if you fear Alzheimer's and dementia, if you don't want a crazy menopause, start working on it today. It's very, very easy to do. I can't tell you how many breast cancer patients where we dug into the, not the what, but why did they get breast cancer? Let the doctor deal with the acute, you know, whether it's surgery or radiation or whatever, but we will go back a few layers to the why and tell you what habits to adopt so it doesn't happen again. Umpteen times we've had to do that. Can you define for the listener, you've talked about estrogen dominance and toxicity. I just want to make sure that those are clear in the, uh, for the, like, what is the difference between someone who's estrogen dominant, which we hear a lot. We hear a lot of people, even online experts will say, oh, do you run estrogen dominant? Do you have these symptoms? What is yeah. the difference between that and estrogen toxicity? 
So in that first pathway we talked about, when you asked me about testosterone, that's the thing we all make. Then what do we do with it? Some women, heavy, 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 converted into estrogen. They don't clear the androgen. They don't turn it into DHT. So this is the aromatization that you're talking about. Yes. Aromatization, convert it into an estrogen. Big bucket full of estrogen. And there's a gene that tells us how well you do that. And if you have the fast version, this is where you land. And But also we look at the other piece of the map. So SIP191, if you have the fast version, you're converting into estrogen. So you're now estrogen dominant. That's understood sometimes functionally by certain doctors as bad news. But they're not considering that it's bad news for the woman who's also estrogen toxic, right? If you're estrogen, estrogen is the bad thing. It makes your hair beautiful, makes your skin beautiful. It gives you, it's good for your muscle. It's good for a lot of things, right? But if it's produced into a toxic metabolite, or if you have the wrong hormone disruption, exaggerating that estrogen dominance, that's when it's a problem. Even men need estrogen. Men have the exact same genetic pathway that I just described. It's identical. There's no difference. The difference is we do it daily and women do it monthly. And we just happen to lean more towards testosterone. But it's the same pathway. There's no difference. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. So when we're right. looking at some of the metabolism, so let's, okay, so we're at the, we've aromatized the estrogen and now we sort of arrive and you described some of them already, the two hydroxy pathways. So we're, now we're sort of at what, what you might say, uh, well, it's called hydroxylation, right? So essentially what we're doing now is we're going to add a hydroxy group to the estrogen. We're either going to go down the two hydroxy estrogen pathway, which you mentioned is the productive pathway. And I think that we want something like 70% at least uh, of our estrogen or estradiol, estrone to be going down that pathway. And then we have the 4-OH pathway, which by the way, I like my body likes this pathway, (laughs) of course. So in addition to not being able to and like, like missing my glutathionization, my body also has a tendency when I did my um, profiling with the DNA company, my body likes the 4-OH pathway, which is not the protective pathway. So this is an estrogen agonist, meaning that it, when you go down this pathway, you are retaining the ability to still activate the estrogen receptor. So think about what that does in the breast tissue, right? It continues cell proliferation because estrogen is anabolic by nature, right? It also shuts down bone, uh, bone, um, Uh, or bone resorption rather, or sorry, pardon me, I said that backwards. So it shuts down bone growth and uh, accentuates breast uh, cell proliferation. So that's just like a recipe for brittle bones and breast cancer if you're not, if you're not being careful. So from a, um, 
uh, from a clinical point of view, let's say, what are some things, because I know that it is possible to jump pathways. Certainly that's been important in my own healing because I you know, wrote a book about what we're talking about in terms of being really estrogen dominant, hating my period for years, thinking I was like cursed. Um, so what are some things clinically that we might consider if someone does their test, let's say with a DNA company, and it says, hey, you have a preference for this 4-hydroxy estrogen or estro- uh, estradiol or estrone pathway. Um, what are some of the things that we might do to be able to say, hey, we don't want to go down this proliferative pathway. We want to go down the protective one. What are some things that we might consider? Sure. So when we answer those questions, we're, we maybe overthink things a little bit, but it becomes perfect. Right? And why do I say that? Because there's some women, like I have to ask how old you are, how much do you weigh, et cetera. Because when women get into menopause, the activity of two versus four is a little unique it can actually be problematic to be down the 2-hydroxy pathway for a short period, right? Mm-hmm. Only during that phase. And so we try and focus on an answer that solves all the answers. And for us, the easiest thing is, why don't we slow down the estrogen pathway? Well, give, if you're already estrogen dominant and toxic, that's the combination. We know supplements you can take, simple ingredients that will literally slow that pathway down. But we actually make a product, the one unique thing we did was in the middle of our office, we opened a, far- a compounding pharmacy. I think you came and saw it actually. I did, yeah. <laughs> so we literally built a pharmacy in the middle of our office so that we could sit there and compound ingredients, like supplement ingredients, and measure the effect on gene pathways, right? And how the, the, the expression changes. And we did this for a number of years with hundreds and hundreds of people. And we came up with these cocktails and we make something called estrogen E, like estrogen uh, dominant, right? Uh, sorry, female E, I should call it, sorry which helps slow down that CYP19A1 pathway. Uh, And we also did the same thing on the androgen side. Here's the ingredients that are blocking that conversion. So as opposed to um, dealing with the disease or the problem, let's go right at the genetic expression level. Now in the last 50 years, testosterone levels in men have declined by 50 or 60%. And the same is true with sperm levels as well. So we're seeing like sperm counts uh, declining. And then when we talk about sperm count, of course, we're not just talking about the number of sperm, but we're talking about the quality of viable sperm. Like we're seeing a gluttonation, like warped, you know, sperm with double heads or without a tail or, you know, whatever they're unable to uh, do their intended job. And I've done podcasts before where, you know, I've talked about, you know, men are the seed and women are the soil, right? So we have mm-hmm. to protect the seed and we also have to nurture the soil. And so with this, with this, uh, you know, um, uh, inclusion of seed oils and grains, um, uh, we mentioned in, you mentioned insulin resistance a while back, uh, but we can circle mm-hmm. back to it now. Why do you think that we are seeing this declining testosterone mm-hmm. in men, or maybe more accurately, an estrogenization of men? Yeah. Um, why do you think that we're seeing that, or do you have any thoughts on no, it? No, well, I do. It's multifaceted. Uh, there's another great person who researches this is Dr. Anthony Jay, who wrote the book Estrogeneration. Hmm. So probably online with Dr. Shanna. I think I, I heard half of that podcast. Uh, I need to finish it. But it's all of modern society. Really, it's, it's all of the it's kind of everything. A lot of it has to do with the food. That's the chemicals. It's the it's everything. That's the problem is that it's everywhere. It's in plastics. I guess most people know about, you know, avoiding certain BPA and all this stuff. It goes way beyond BPA. 
and it's still everywhere. And yes, they make different versions and it's like, oh, this is BPA free, but okay, well, what is it? You know, it's just like one molecule off. And these are all leaching estrogen in, they are, or having, yeah, estrogen antagonists or, or testosterone antagonists, all this different stuff that happens in the body, endocrine disrupting chemicals. It's in anything though, even in the line lines of can, like the liner of cans, like in the soda can, it has it in the liner to protect it. It's in car interiors. Like if you get a new car, that smell, that is all these chemicals that are in the fabrics and all this stuff that are like off gassing into your body. When you get into your hot car, it's in the water. It's in the foods you eat. Soy, particularly soy-based products have tons of this, these estrogens, everything about it, everything about our society. So, I mean, I don't even know, um, what to I know Sean to. Baker likes to call them soy boys, which I, I think so, is really, <laughs> But so, it makes sense. So, it's yeah. like they, people are headed that way. It's like there yeah. is this feminization happening because of the way we live. So the best thing to do, yes, yeah, is to start being aware of all of them. And yeah, you have to start using different kinds of pans and different, not using, you know, you don't heat things up in plastic. And uh, hopefully, you know, people know some of this stuff or you've talked about on other episodes. But one of the biggest things you can do Yes, it's changed the diet because what you eat is going to be a huge factor. If you think of the volume of food that goes into your body, that that's a big determinant of what, you know, what happens with your hormones and what happens, your body has to process all those foods. And so, yes, if you're eating these soy, but if you're eating all these like fake soy products and refined grains and all these different seed oils, these all basically are affecting you and your hormones. So the, the best way to, to counteract that is to stop eating them. And it actually makes a big difference pretty quickly. And also I'd say men or, or women too, get out there and lift some heavy weights, you know, like do some exercise. Like th there's a lot of good research on boosting, not only avoiding estrogen and different things that will, you know, lower your testosterone, but ways to actively gain and uh, produce more testosterone, like, you know, mm. ancestral living, getting out there, yeah. Doing things. And I, I would say that often the low T, the low testosterone rarely has anything to do with the testosterone. Like I had a friend reach out to me recently and was like, okay, I'm, you know, my T is like testosterone is low. I'm going to start taking um, supplementation. Like when should I do it? And I was like, well, why don't we actually look, let's look at your fasting insulin levels. Let's look at your environment. As you were saying, the EDC, endocrine, endocrine disrupting uh, chemicals. Let's look at your movement. Like what is your, what is your need to look like? What's your non-exercise activity? How many steps are you getting per day? And you know, you just said lift heavy weights. Yes. When men and women lift heavy shit, like if you want metabolic health, <laughs> yeah. you're not going to end for the ladies. You're not going to get bulky. I promise. I lift heavy weights. I'm not bulky. Lifting weights I mean, we, I mean, metabolic health, yes. But the other thing that lifting weights does, which I think is often uh, really underemphasized, is the impact that it has on your mental health and your mental resilience and your ability to do hard things when it's uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, I don't, I, I realize I'm getting on my soapbox, so I'm going to, I'm going to step oh, down. I love it. I'm going to step down. It. But I think that when you, face the weights, you know, what's going to be like, I did legs this morning, like destroyed my legs, like tomorrow mm -hmm. stairs is not going to be uh, a good thing. But I know mm -hmm. that that helps my, it helps me do hard things in my business. It helps me as a mother. It helps me as a parent. It helps me in every aspect of my life. Um, 
because it is, I mean, just like the name suggests, it's training your resistance. Um, and, you know, you have world events like a pandemic where we've seen mental health, like just in the tube. And I think that if we were able to go all in on something, I mean, if there's one thing, hopefully if there's two things you're taking away from this conversation, it's eat meat, mm. uh, at least sometimes and, and lift mm. weights because those and, you know, kind of coming back to this idea of testosterone in men, I often talk about, you know, there's two ways that you build muscle in the gym and in the kitchen, right? So you build muscle in the gym, you tear apart the muscle, you know, you rip mm. up the fibers, the sarcomeres, the sarcomeres heal afterwards, but you can also create a, with a protein bolus like meat, um, you can also initiate muscle protein synthesis, which is just naturally going to increase your testosterone as a male or a female. Um, because you require testosterone to maintain those muscles. Um, so with that, I, okay, I, I promise it. I'm, oh, I'm done now. I just, no, I love it. <laughs> I, you know, I, I just, just lift weight. It's, it's more, it's, it's everything though. It, it helps you metabolically. It helps you mentally, but it's even just signaling to your body to get bigger, that you're strong, that you're powerful, that you, boosting testosterone, all this stuff, boosting your confidence, everything about it is yeah, good. So we'll leave it at that. One. Yeah. yeah. I, I would, I would love for you to expand on, um, you yeah. know, sometimes when you think about, you know, you think about like, why does, why would that be something that we have? Like, why is that a thing? You know, I love to look at things from like an evolutionary okay. perspective. Yes. And I think that context here might be important because yes. the so title of your, yeah. 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 So let me talk about two things. One is the big picture stuff of um, what happens for, it's like a survival switch in evolution. And we'll just talk about all the things that we, we identified that fructose does. And then I'll explain the biologic mechanism in more detail. Yes. Okay. So it turns out that when you eat fructose, as I mentioned, there's a drop in energy and it signals to the animal that it's in trouble. Now, the interesting part is if you eat fructose, you can actually have plenty of storage fat. You're actually okay. But because it drops the ATP, it, it, the, it tricks the body into thinking that it doesn't have enough fat and it wants to put on more fat. Normally, ATP levels are kept at a very, very regulated level. We have a, you know, a very, very stable amount of ATP in our, in our cells. And if the ATP level goes down, the fat re, uh, releases, uh, gets metabolized and produces the ATP we need. So normally our ATP levels are great. But what this thing does is when you eat fructose, it prevents the fat from breaking down while at the same time dropping the ATP. So the, the, the body thinks it's not getting enough food and so it starts eating, you start eating more and, and so forth. So the switch, the survival switch is one where a first, you know, if you're gonna get store fat, you're gonna, you wanna be hungry. You wanna be hungry even if you're eating food. So it stimulates hunger. It does this by causing a thing called leptin resistance. Normally there's a hormone that when you eat, it turns up, it tells you when you're full. And what happens is this hormone uh, becomes, you become resistant to this hormone when you eat fructose. Interestingly, overweight people are also resistant to leptin. So this is actually what's seen in people who are overweight. 
And fructose absolutely causes this. We showed this several ways. Okay, so fructose makes you hungry. Secondly, fructose makes you thirsty. If you think a soft drink is quenching, it's not. If you drink a soft drink, you will stay thirsty. And it's because sugar actually creates thirst. And I won't go into the detail of it yet, but basically it makes you thirsty. So now sugar, fructose is making, even though you're eating calories, you're getting hungry and you're getting thirsty. And you got to go search for the food. So it stimulates foraging and it works on the brain to actually make you, it increases locomotor activity. So you, that means you start moving around, looking for food. You're looking, you have to search for food. And so it allow, it increases your, your activity to search for food and it makes your visual cortex, you know, and your brain pick out food easier. And it gives you visual cues where you will, and, and it gives you the, it decreases your willpower to say no because it wants you to be able to go into dangerous areas to find food. If you're an animal, you have to go out into areas where maybe there's predators. So it creates a little bit of bravery and aggression to be able to go out there. And, it, and you can't deliberate. You can't like take your time. You have to like move be looking around and trying to figure out what's going on. And so you, 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 there's, you, you have to rapidly process things. And so this stimulates this type of behavior. And you can show it in, in uh, imaging of the brain. So you get hungry, you get thirsty, you start searching for food. And then in the, in the body, there's a stimulation of fat production called what we call lipogenesis. And there's also a blocking of fat, of the burning of fat. So you can't, you're not, can't produce the energy from the fat you have. Instead, you're, you're, you're putting more fat in. And at the same time, you become insulin resistant. And this is, and actually animals do this when they're preparing for hibernation. They do all this survival thing. They forage, they get hungry, they, and because they've triggered the switch. And, and when you become insulin resistant, what happens is the glucose in our blood, that molecule of life that <laughs> Rob Lustig calls, and it really is, it's our, our main fuel. You know, that's the main fuel for the brain. And if, if the body thinks that it's in trouble, it wants to keep the glucose available for the brain. And so it does that by preventing the glucose from getting into the muscle. And so it causes insulin resistance and insulin's required to move glucose into muscle. And so when you become insulin resistant, there's less usage of glucose by the muscle. And, 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 and so there's more in the blood and the brain doesn't require insulin as much. And so it likes, it can get its share more than its share of glucose, which is important because you want the brain to get that glucose so that you can be thinking if you're if you're starving you don't want to uh, you know be lightheaded and because you're going to get into trouble so uh, so basically it activates us it raises your blood pressure because it wants to keep the circulation strong it induces a little bit of inflammation to help fight off infections it's really there to heighten your ability to survive so fructose was meant to be a good thing it was meant to help animals get through the winter when there's 
no food around. It's, it was meant to help birds be able to migrate across oceans, go thousands of kilometers, you know, where, where, where it would not be able to do normally. So by storing all this fat, it provides this energy that you can get and use when, when there's no food around. So it was really meant to be something. And we, humans, there was a time in our past where it was really important to be able to store fat too. Food was not always available to us. And there were times like, and, and we actually have identified periods of time when there were these severe famines that lasted for not uh, 10 years, but hundreds and thousands of years. And, and when that happened, uh, you know, we actually had mutations occur that allowed us to be more sensitive to sugar. And so we, we have identified two of those mutations. And, you know, as a result of that, we are more sensitive to sugar. And we, we, we wanted that because we wanted to be able to store the fat at, during times of famine. So this is the big picture. It's interesting. And as part of a, a diet to lower uric acid, it's something to be considering, uh, as is alcohol as well. And we'll talk about the types of alcohol in just a moment. But the biggest player by far and away uh, is the fructose consumption that is so pervasive uh, amongst uh, humans now. You know, the, the average uric acid uh, in North America was about 3.5 in the 1920s. Now it's six. And it has paralleled uh, in lockstep uh, our ever increasing consumption of sugar. So, you know, the average uh, American, uh, I suspect it's the same in Canada, consumes somewhere north of 50 pounds of sugar uh, each year. That's, that's uh, um, five 10 pound bowling balls of sugar uh, every single year. And now, you know, we've known that's not a good thing. When, but we've been focusing for a long time on the fact that it's a glucose load, right? Because table sugar, sucrose, is 50% glucose and 50% fructose. So we, we really focused on the glucose. Why? Because it's that glucose that stimulates the insulin production. Therefore, high levels of glucose, higher levels of insulin would be become insulin resistance. We develop insulin resistance because we have so much glucose floating around. Next thing you know, we're a diabetic. And we've said, I don't know if we've said it, but it's been said over the years that, well, fructose, because it doesn't use insulin for its metabolism, might be a safer choice. Therefore, let's go all in on the high fructose corn syrup, et cetera. Well, it turns out that fructose indeed is related to the production of insulin resistance and raises blood sugar, blood glucose. So that it's anything but a safer sugar. It's in fact, even more threatening because it's not just blood sugar that it targets. It also increases blood pressure and it also directly leads to what we call lipogenesis, the creation of body fat. And, you know, for most people, that's not necessarily uh, what, what they want to do. So, we know now that uh, in North America, more than 60% of the packaged foods in the grocery store have added sweetener. And by and large, these are either high fructose corn syrup or derivatives of high fructose corn syrup, having lots and lots of fructose because it's cheaper and it's sweeter than glucose. So we're really favoring more and more the addition of fructose to our foods and watching uh, these skyrocketing rates of obesity, of hypertension, uh, and certainly uh, diabetes. We know that 
here in America, there are uh, close to uh, 80 million pre-diabetics and about 34 million already diabetics. Uh, so this is about, you know, 45% of adults in, here in, in America. I'm, I'm certain it's the same in Canada or close. Uh, that, you know, we're talking about 45% are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. We know that uh, 88% of American adults has at least one component of what we call the metabolic syndrome. And that means that only about one in eight adults here is metabolically intact. And I submit that fructose is the biggest player. And now we understand why. It's through this alarm system called uric acid, raising the alarm that winter's coming, make the body fat, raise the blood pressure. So when we target that uric acid and bring it under control uh, by lowering our fructose consumption, for example, increasing our vitamin C, taking nutritional supplements that help to lower uric acid, uh, it's a huge leap forward. Uh, his his episode is one of our top 10, like did, has done so well. And we were talking about thyroid function and the ketogenic diet. And he, it, it was, and I've seen this as well. And he observed that women who are on a keto, like a kind of a strict ketogenic, classic ketogenic protocol, where it's like 70% or above, you know, fat, and then, you know, kind of moderate protein about let's say 20, 25%, and then like the fillest carbs. If you're on that kind of macronutrient split for a long time, it appears like women tend to be a bit more sensitive to, uh, you know, the thought that the integrity of their thyroid function, like specifically like, you know, upregulating reverse T3. Uh, we see, you know, with hypothyroidism, more women tend to be hypothyroid to begin with, which is of course, you know, just going to decrease the catabolism of cholesterol into bile anyway, you know, so there's kind of this like thing that's already happening. And, and one of the things that I like to do for women who've been in, uh, let's say doing a keto, like a classic ketogenic diet, therapeutic metabolic intervention is then to up the protein. So to kind of play around with the fat protein, you know, instead of going like 70, 20, 10, let's say maybe it's like 40, 40, 20, you know, maybe, or something like that, 50, 30, 20, something like that, where it's like 50% or 40% fat, 30 or 40% protein. And then like the fill again is, is carbohydrates, but the carbs are still mm -hmm. relatively low, but it seems yeah. like that increase in protein to your point around like prioritizing protein. It seems like that also does seem to be the, the thing that helps with the female response, like that thyroid, that attenuation in function in their thyroid. Yeah, yeah, I do think that's really interesting. And it does appear that there's um, a decreased conversion rate of T4 to T3 on a keto diet. The question is, what are the clinical implications of that? I don't know how well that's been studied to see if there are clinical implications, but it's still an interesting observation. And I think you're right that by adding more protein and, and altering the diet in certain ways, you can probably get around that if it is um, an issue. But yeah, it's one of the things where, you know, um, you do have to not just start the keto diet and forget it, right? You just like anything you should, it's an intervention for a purpose. So one, you want to make sure you're having the right beneficial effects and make sure you're not having any, any um, untoward effects that you, that you want to prevent. So and I think it is um, important to to continue to follow your health no matter what you're doing. That's a simple statement. One of the uh, other observations I'd love your thoughts on, uh, and this is more more with my men, but I saw it. I, I focus more on on women now. But when I was seeing uh, both men and women, I would notice that if they had been on the ketogenic diet for a long time, like year, two years, 
they also had a, they were also a little more insulin resistant. Like if we did like mm-hmm. a glucose tolerance test, let's say yeah. like an oral glucose tolerance test, we gave them that, like, you know, that really gross, you know, like 75 grams that of glucose whatever the glucose is. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, it, yeah. They, ha- they, they performed really poorly. Whereas if I had mm. given them, let's say a carbohydrate bolus prior to the test, they, they performed better. Oh, absolutely. So that is, that's well, well observed and, um, and written about and understood that that's the case. And, um, I think the interesting thing is how long do you have to like, quote unquote, carb up before a glucose tolerance test? You know, the, the, I guess the common narrative is three days, but there was a study that came out maybe like a year ago that suggested actually two weeks. Um, so it's somewhere in that three day to two week period where you, if you want to pass your glucose tolerance test, you need to carb up. So then the question is, well, why is that? Like, are you insulin resistant or are you not? And it's more of like a temporary insulin resistance because your, your body hasn't needed to respond to that amount of glucose or sugar in so long that it's, 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 I don't know the, what's the word, um, amorphizing or whatever, like your pancreas goes to sleep, so to speak, or, or isn't quite as responsive because it's been so long, but as you slowly ramp up your carbs, it wakes right up. And usually then you aren't insulin resistant. So I I don't like calling it insulin resistance because insulin resistance suggests like a chronic condition with how you are, but if you're not eating the carbs, you know, it it doesn't matter, right? If you're not testing yourself with, with carbohydrates, then it doesn't matter if your if your pancreas is slow to respond. Now, where this can come into play though, is, is those quote unquote cheat days. Um, if you have sort of regular cheat days, you know, once every week, once every two weeks, you're not giving your body the chance to adapt and be able to respond quickly to them, especially if they're high carb cheat days. So you may have higher rises, longer durations of your of your, um, of your glucose and your insulin. But the harder question is at what point does it become detrimental? Right. Cause again, yeah. one day a month, probably not a problem. One day and then a how week. How do you structure them? It, like how do you, is it like a carb up day you're talking about? Or are you just doing like a Dom, Dom talked about, um, I don't know the correct term, but it was like a car. It was like a ketogenic refeed where he just gave himself more calories still, still, still sticking to the macros. Is that what you mean when you're talking about a cheat day? Um, no, I'm talking about actually increasing carbs. So actually, so like a carb. Yeah. So, and and not like a purposeful cheat day, right? Like people look, nobody's perfect. Right. So if if somebody does slip up sort of on a regular basis and hit the chocolate more than they wanted to, or, you know, sample the dessert and get into the ice cream. And the, the point I'm trying to make is on a ketogenic diet, that could be more of a concern because of this lack of response from the pancreas when you're consistently in a ketogenic diet. So that's where, you know, if, if you should somebody squat. is you struggling, squat. <laughs> you should, <laughs> right, right. you should have this dessert and then go soak and squat. up that sugar. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Make sure you're soaking up that glucose in some other way. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great point. That's yeah. a great point. Or, or is that the type of person who maybe doesn't need to be on a ketogenic diet and instead a, a 75 gram carb diet consistently focusing on high quality, high fiber carbs may offset that. So then when you, if you um, continue to have those days where you slip up or attempted, you may not have the same dramatic rise. This is all sort of hypothesis using the data that's out there and trying to bring it together. But that's something to consider with some people um, if they're having a harder time sticking to and being adherent to a, a keto diet. But we often 
disregard testosterone in women. And, you know, as you were saying, it's involved in, um, you know, hyper like maintenance of our muscle. It's involved in libido. It's involved in mental health and clarity. And when we talk about these, you know, women in particular, the women that I, you know, cause I'm, I'm in there, like I'm in my mid forties. So I have, you know, women in perimenopause that are like, how do you not have hot, hot, hot and how do you, you know, how are you living your life? And so that I can maybe emulate that. What we don't consider for women is the, you know, the brain effects, let's say, as well as the physical effects that testosterone has in the body. And one of the more natural women, mean, of course, you can always have uh, TRT, which is like, you know, still controversial for women um, and maybe a separate discussion. But one of the natural ways to improve libido, uh, you know, for women who are in perimenopause, some of the things that I'm often told is like pain during sex or even at, you know, when testosterone is really low in women, like painful orgasms, like they really, it's very, very uncomfortable for that, for that tissue to contract. Mm. So I think it's also really important as a natural means for improving our testosterone levels. And as you're saying, I promise you, you're not going to turn into the Hulk. Like I, I competed in figure, uh, like figure competitions, um, before I had my boys and like my goal was hypertrophy. Like I yeah. was like packing on the plates on, like I wanted to get big and I was working at it several times a week, long hours in the gym. And it's, 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 I mean, may, of course there's outliers. There's going to be some women who are more genetically, uh, let's say inclined to uh, be able to have that type of morphology, but for 90%, 99% of women, that's not going to happen. And that's part of the lie. I think that we've been told like, with, yes. like I, I love pumping iron. Like I love, you know, but what? that's not my, that's not going to be me. I'm never no. going to look like that. I'm yeah. so glad you said that. Uh, so two things. Yes. Testosterone is a female hormone, just like it's a male hormone. I'm so glad you said that just like estrogen is a male hormone as well. In fact, I have a, a friend who um, he competed as a professional bodybuilder and through the process used anabolic steroids got to the point where his body just didn't produce testosterone and had to go on uh, testosterone replacement therapy, was on it, felt better, and then started to feel really, really bad. Couldn't figure out what was going on, felt depressed and whatever, even though he was taking testosterone, got checked. His estrogen was too low because he was also taking an estrogen blocker, an astrazole. Mm -hmm. And the doctor's like, you need your, your estrogen to be higher. So same thing for women. The right balance of testosterone to estrogen is going to make you feel great. No testosterone makes you feel terrible, just like it does and a man, just like no estrogen in a man would make him feel terrible. Now, to what you were saying about building muscle, I'm going to uh, I'm gonna just hammer that home, okay? I talked earlier about, like, if I lived in the NBA and saw everybody there, I would see, I would think everybody was seven feet tall. Okay. In real life, I'm going to ask you a question. In real life, forget watching a professional basketball game. I'm talking about you go to the grocery store, you go to the gym, you go to the airport, whatever. How many times in your life have you ever seen someone that's seven feet tall? It was one time and I met Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, okay. <laughs> who is an NBA. You, know, like, you remember um, it because yeah, it was so yeah. rare, right? In yeah, your entire yeah. life, you saw somebody just once yeah. that's seven feet tall. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's, that's how rare the muscle building genetics of bodybuilders uh, and female bodybuilders and male bodybuilders are. So if there's a spectrum way over here, you have, uh, you know, musculoskeletal issues, medical issues, like people that, that have to get treated because you know, they're, they're just not well. And way over here, you have the, you know, genetically gifted muscle builders uh, akin to people who are seven feet tall. Okay. Super, super rare. Okay. M most everybody is in the middle. Okay. Meaning 
no matter how hard you train, I tell you what, you can't even take all the steroids you want. You're not going to look like a professional bodybuilder. That's a true story, right? That's how rare those genetics are. So don't worry about that. In fact, if you are that person with those super rare genetics, you know, you know, you probably don't even work out and you look like you lift a lot of weights all the time, right? That's not you. The, you can train as hard as you want. You can train like a bodybuilder. You can do it for years and years and years. And what you'll achieve is a sculpted physique, fast metabolism. You'll get the body that you're looking for. You'll get the body that you look you, that you say, oh, that's what happens when you run a lot. No, that's actually what happens when you lift weights right. all the time. So, and, and by the way, let's say, you know, for you're, you're one in a billion and you do work out and, oh my gosh, I build muscle really, really fast. Okay. It's not going to happen overnight. I used to have clients tell me this, like, well, what happens if I get too muscular? So, so you tell me when you think you're too muscular and then we'll like scale it back. Don't worry right. about it. We'll just maintain at that point, which by the way, studies show that the amount of volume and training it takes to build muscle, about one ninth of that is, is required to maintain. Here's one of the beauties of resistance training right. is maintaining muscle is easy. Building it's a little harder. Maintaining it is quite easy. There's also something called muscle memory, which is a real documented phenomenon, meaning if it takes you a year to build five pounds of, of calorie burning sculpted muscle, and, and that's a, a year of consistent training, and then you, for whatever reason, stop working out for two or three months um, and you lose it, you'll gain it back in a month or two. It, it comes back so much faster than the first time. So training your body through strength training, although there's no such thing as permanent fitness results, it lends itself really well to modern life because most everyday people, even those that are consistent, are going to miss a week if their kids are sick or something happens or they're going to miss a month or whatever. It's the results stick around much longer and they're easier to come back. So it's, it's just really, really good form of exercise for the context of modern life. It's really, really effective. And you don't need to do a lot of it, by the way. The average person, for what they're looking for, two to three days a week will get you very far. Like that's it. Two to three days a week. You'll get the metabolism boosting. You'll get the sculpt. You'll 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 get strong. Like you you'll feel amazing. You don't need to do it all the time to get a uh, great result. Now, if you want to, eventually you can. But two or three days. I mean, I, I had no clients that I trained more than that. I, maybe like a few, and these were people that eventually became trainers. But most people, two three days a week, consistent with me, and they were just like so happy with the success they had. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 